Hello, welcome to the podcast today. My name is Justin Perkins and this is Talk Junkie. Today, um, today we're going to talk about something that that's pretty relevant, I guess, news-wise right now. Today we're going to talk about voting and elections. It, looking back, you know, I, I don't know a lot of the scandal involving how people, or, or not scandal, a lot of the conditions on how people felt when Ronald Reagan was elected the first or second time. When I was born in 82. Um, I don't remember a lot about how people felt when um, Herbert Walker Bush was elected, uh, Bush Sr. Um, I was young. It wasn't really on my radar. As, and it's hard as a kid sometimes. You know, you don't, you don't have the wherewithal or the the understanding to gauge that emotion and, and things of that nature. The first presidential election that I remember an open response to was was Clinton. Um, people seem to be somewhat excited about Clinton. Now, <clears throat> that that's based on the area I was in because we were nowhere near as global yet. I live in eastern Kentucky, so we were still, you know, the internet brought great change to to how integrated we were into society outside of here, and, and I've done a couple podcasts talking about that, um, but I remember Kennedy seeming to be, um, not Kennedy, I'm sorry, Clinton seeming to be a, 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 a bright point for people when, when he was first elected. I, I was excited about that. I was a kid, and there was just, you know, the Ars- Arsenio Hall stuff, like he seemed different, you know. Later on, I, I become a Rage Against the Machine fan and an anti-government uh, person all the way around, you know, and, and didn't like Kennedy and, I was Kennedy, Clinton. I didn't like Clinton. And, you know, that that was more of a fad, I guess, I was going through. Looking back now with NAFTA and, and, and Bosnia and all these different situations, you know, my my feelings towards Clinton are what they are. But that's not really what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about that feeling around election. In 2000, when W was, was elected, um, it was the first election I was old enough to be a part of the process and and to be involved in and look at and, you know, that made it different. Um, I, I remember a lot of contention, but I don't remember it, you know, the magnitude, real magnitude of, of um, concern or, or happiness or disenfranchisement. You know, feel, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't remember that because it wasn't on my radar to look at it. I remember 2016. Um... And I remember 2020, obviously. You know, the meme of the girl freaking out and all the people crying from Trump's election in 2016. Those make funny memes. They they really do. They make funny memes. And it's one of the few political uh, opinions I'll give you during this podcast. Um, I was perfectly fine with that election. I didn't, and, and, and I've even said in the past, it's, you know, it's it's sad to say you 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 don't care about who wins. You just care about who loses. I really just cared about who lost, and I, I think it's imperative to the country that Hillary Clinton never be a president. Um, 
after the last four years and the way people, at least half the people, how staunchly they feel, it may be very imperative that Trump never be president again because half of the country is extremely miserable. But I believe we all would have been miserable as long as we functioned with our eyes open under Clinton. But as funny as those memes are, and, and despite how I feel about it, you know, I did not vote for Trump. I voted third party. Um, what wasn't funny was, was how those people in those memes felt. Think about, think about why we vote. Because we vote now in, in a way and with a capacity that's never been seen by American citizens in, in, in the past. And we're going to go over that extensively today. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't have a cough button with the new app. Um, we, we vote not, I, I, I guess, <clears throat> excuse me, I guess the misconception truly is, and, and I've felt this way, that we vote for the fact that it's a freedom. It, it's, it's an opportunity. It, it's a right we're exercising that right and we're exercising our freedom to choose representation. Um, but that's not really why we vote. We we vote out of passion and, and we vote out of desire and we vote out of want for change. That, that's, that's why we vote. And a lot of people, a vast majority of people now, but a lot of people in the past, especially African-American voters, have voted for the desire to be represented. They have voted because they are disenfranchised, because they are not represented. And you will hear the strongest voices from the people who get the least representation. And I believe you saw that in this election. You heard the loudest voices from African-American voters who uh, nationally and traditionally have had some of the lowest representation, the Native Americans who have had almost no representation many times in elections, just like African Americans in the past, um, uh, Latino Americans, um, Cuban Americans, um, white underprivileged Americans. You you hear the the passion in in their voices. Um, the, the thing is, I would think as an outsider looking in, that you realize is all these people who are underrepresented, underprotected, and, and never, tr never truly represented in any fashion in any administration ever are not voting the same way. They're voting different ways. Underprivileged uh, white Americans and... and um, Cuban Americans are are voting very right wing. Um, uh, to the contrary, you you're looking at um, people from African American um, backgrounds uh, to a large degree of of um, the percentage are, are voting uh, Democrat. Same as with uh, a lot of. Uh, Latin Latino Americans, they're they're voting they're voting to the left for a, a large portion of that, um, and 
it, it, it's two different parties representing the sum of unrepresented people. Now the question is, are those people going to be represented by the people they voted for? Probably not. Um, that, that's just the sad truth and fact of the matter. <clears throat> um, but it, it's important to look at that reason for voting and, and to look at that and understand um, it, it, it's not about party. It, it's about the desire to, to be represented and the desire to exercise your right and the desire for your voice to be heard, for your voice to matter as much as anyone else's. So I, in the past, have, have been upset with people. And look, I, I, I do to some degree get upset with, with a certain group of people voting a certain way. I don't understand it, but I'm not. I have been mad in the past about that, but I shouldn't. We, we, we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be mad that someone is trying to feel heard and represented. And there's a reason that they go the direction that they go, left or right. It, it's based on the fact that the opposing side has never appeared to represent them at all. And even if this side isn't representing them, <clears throat> at least it's a change, it's a shift. And... The, the big thing to remember is that as passionately as you voted, with as much meaning as your vote had to you, that vote from the other side had as much passion and meaning in a lot of times. Um, and, and it is not a party thing. You know, there's, there was a point in time in the history of the United States that there is no way you could possibly convince an African-American to vote Democrat. There was a point in time in the United States where there was no possible way you could get Southerners, Southern white men, to vote Republican. There was a point in time in America where democratically, Democrat-led Jim Crow laws were the most oppressive things to black voting rights. And there's a point in time in America in certain states where Republican-led opposition has been the most restrictive element of African-American and Native American voting, especially in places like Arizona. So it's not a party thing because our collective history is different. The parties have shifted sides. But it's still a matter of wanting to be heard and wanting to be represented. And when it's apparent that you're not represented and you're not heard, you have to get passionate about that. You have to make a move. So I think it's far better that someone vote for somebody I completely and totally disagree with and elect them than sit idly by and be unrepresented. Ideally, it'd be nice if we could have a middle ground, a point to where we could vote to whichever direction, whichever policies and, and personal beliefs we, we identified with, but we could be satisfied with the outcome either way. Now, we're at that point in some respects. It doesn't matter how you vote right now. You get the same thing. You know, um, I know people that were so excited to see the Obama administration replace the Cheney administration. And I do believe that was 100% the Cheney administration and not W. But we look at things done during the Obama administration. We look at things done during the Bush administration. And... and, and 
Where's the difference? Universal health care is always pointed out as a difference, but universal health care took a lot of people off of governmentally funded health care that were already there and placed them on a different version of governmentally funded health care, counted it as growth for their new program, and they took people who already had company-paid health care and moved it to a, a different category and counted it as growth. But roughly the same amount of Americans were covered, and a lot of Americans like myself lost their their health care because their company simply said it's easier to pay and cheaper to pay the fine than it is to pay the health care because health care costs inevitably went up, and then we were penalized for not having it. So it wasn't a growth. It was much of the same process. Was it a step in the right direction? Yes. Um, is it possible that he really intended to have something completely different and couldn't get it because of the House and Senate? Yes. It is, that's highly possible. Um, but it is what happened. We were very much still at war. Um, you know, war was the foundation for the Cheney administration. It's where he made his money. It's where Halliburton made their money. It, it was the backbone of that administration, and that war continued on despite being told that we would leave that war through the next administration. Uh, drone strikes increased substantially during that administration. You know, and, and in comes Trump, and we're still in those same wars. Um, are there fewer people in those wars? I, I've looked at a lot of statistics, and that's really hard to pin down. In most cases, yes, it, 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 there are fewer troops engaged in that. We're also almost 20 years deep into that war. Um, longest confrontations, I believe, in United States history. And um, we we also are probably getting ready to send a lot more troops with the new administration back. We, we've elected a war hawk in, in Biden. And, and, you know, that's something that generally is not identified with the Democratic Party. But those, those lines are shifting. Those, those things are changing. And uh, the endorsement uh, in a very quiet and subtle way from Cheney and Bush to Biden symbolizes that. Symbolizes that, that passing of the baton, if you will. So we are at a point to where our vote really doesn't affect what's going to happen in the country. What's going to happen is going to happen regardless of who the president is. We're going to be at war because that makes money. Um, we're, we're not going to give away any free money that we don't have to unless it's a return on investment with votes. Uh, but that's not what we want. What we want is for it to not matter which party we elect because either party will at least fairly represent our rights. And we don't have that regardless of which party we elect. Um... The biggest thing, the biggest thing from now to Inauguration Day, no matter if this election is contested, no matter what, it is you can be dissatisfied with the outcome of the election. You can be dissatisfied with who won. You can be dissatisfied with the direction in which you believe the country is going in the future. But the thing you don't need to be dissatisfied with and the thing that you don't need to to have a problem with is people exercising their right to vote and their desire to do that. And 
and there's going to be a lot of talk about voter fraud. There's always been voter fraud, and there there always will be voter fraud. Um, the the issue that we really need to worry about is controlling that voter fraud, and and to what degree does that voter fraud affect the election? Is it really a huge impediment to our election? Is it is it really impacting our election? And something we're not discussing is voter suppression. And voter suppression is in a lot of ways more atrocious than voter fraud. But both need to be addressed. You know, I hear talk about doing away with the Electoral College. I'm, I'm going to do a, a, a podcast on, on, on the Electoral College and, and why it in a two-party system is the only way we could ever hope to have any semblance of equal representation. Uh, it, it's it's bound and necessary. But let's today we're going to look at, at voting and, and voting rights and voting acts, and we're going to look at contested uh, elections and, and elections who that have had an air of stink around them and go from there and, and, and just kind of look at the, the, elec- the election process. One of the biggest elements to this is, is how and why we vote. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try to cover that briefly and quickly without getting into a lot. There was a lot of research on that end, but that, that's parts of that may go into another podcast. And, you know, originally we, we, we're not a um, constitutional republic of, of all these states. Um, we, we fairly well tried democracy in a pure sense from the beginning, but you know, um, from Rome, you, you can see the downfalls of democracy. But also, one of the issues with democracy is equal representation and, and equal involvement. And, you know, the United States started out as 13 colonies, very widely separated over a a long stretch of real, real estate um, and, and surrounded by the powers that we had just destroyed um, in, in the British and also surrounded by French and Spanish. Uh, we, we were an island in a lot of senses and um, very, very separated. And it's, it's hard to have that representation um, when, when you're divided uh, by the fact that you're independent colonies, but also even when you become states, you're, you're, you're divided by such a large geographic area. So the ideal of a Congress, a Senate, and an executive to, to sit over it is, and, and the processes in which decisions are made in a constitutional republic are much more advantageous for that environment. To me, it's much more advantageous for any environment because it allows for some actual representation and fairness. Now, something that to me has changed from um, the late 50s on is 
the actual act of how we're governed and the understanding of that process, the, the House and Senate are our governing bodies to a, a large extent, and that, that's the way it's created. They should be taking the time to make the decisions, to interpret the laws, to, to enact the changes. That's their job. They are truly the most powerful portion of the government. Um, and they are the most powerful because they're also the highest, they have the highest population of representation. They have the most members. Whereas the president is, is an executive. He, he you know, um, instant results, instant action. He, he acts on these things and, and makes a lot of decisions that nowadays he makes were not originally part of the president's process and, and part of his scope of power and um, things that he should have done with the House and, and the Senate that no longer being done that way. But to, to just name these people, to choose to have Congress choose congressional successors to have the Senate choose senatorial successors to have the president choose a successor well you you have the possibility for nepotism you have the possibility for political obviously you're going to have um, po political biases and you're going to have certain groups of people be more represented than others and so our right to vote, and I don't think people understand how important voting senators and congressmen and women are. Uh, I, don't, I don't think they understand how important that is because that should be the bulk of your representation. The president himself should be the action man that acts upon this representation that you're, uh, you're provided via the House and Senate. And I don't think we look at elections that way. And I think the the face of of politics and and power have changed in that regard, and people aren't uh, looking at it through that light. And, and to me, that's very imperative that we do that. It's important that we understand that that's how the system, in a lot of ways, is supposed to work. Now, when voting first. Uh, become fashion in 1789 the construction of the United States grants the states the power to set voting requirements now generally and, and by generally what they mean is almost totally states limited the rights to property owning or tax paying white males it was only 6% of the population but in 1789, that was your voting representation. 6% of the country, only property-owning white males. Um, in 1790, you get the Naturalization Act. Uh, it allows all free white persons born outside of the United States to become citizens. However, um, due to the Constitution giving power to the states to set voting requirements, um, its act, uh, the act of, of naturalization in 1790, as well as the act that followed in 1795, it didn't automatically grant the right to vote. 
1792 to 1838. This was a long process. Um, this is not something that happened overnight. And that's a pretty good expanse of time to cover. 1792 to 1838. Free black males lose the right to vote in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey. So northern states had allowed them some representation and slowly started to roll it back. And that's not the last time you'll see that for African Americans being represented in the vote. In 1792 to 1856, uh, they done away with property qualification for white men. Um, from 1792 in Kentucky to 1856 in North Carolina, um, that was under the Jefferson and Jackson democracy. In the 1820 election, there were 108,359 ballots cast. Most older states with property restrictions dropped them by the mid-1820s, except for Rhode Island. Rhode Island held on to the property, had owned property. Virginia and North Carolina uh, also held on to those. Uh, no new states had property qualifications, although three had adopted taxpaying qualifications. This is to say that you had to be a taxpayer in order to vote, and that's Ohio, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Uh, of those three, uh, only in Louisiana were these significant and long-lasting. Uh, the 1828 presidential election was the first in which non-property-holding white males could vote in the vast majority of states. So it became a, a pretty sweeping change by 1828. By the end of the 1820s, attitudes and state laws had shifted in favor of universal white male suffrage. It, it's amazing, probably, to some people to sit down and think that at one point in time, white male voters did not feel significantly represented in the elections in the United States of America. But kind of like what we talked about when we first started this podcast, everyone's looking for representation, and that's why voting has a lot of value and meaning to people. And if it doesn't to you, it should. Even if the system is broken, and I feel the system's completely broken, and I, I feel that both major parties are a complete and total sham. The right and freedom to vote is still important, and only by exercising that vote can we hope to change that system. Only by appreciating other people's desire and defending their ability to vote can that process have any true meaning. Now, in the 1830s, voter turnout soared. Uh, reaching about 80% of adult white male population. In the 1840s, pre 1840 presidential election, 2,412,694 ballots were cast, an increase that far outstripped uh, natural population growth, making poor voters a huge part of the electorate. Poor white voters for the most part, but making poor voters a huge part of the electorate not allowing any longer for elections to be completely controlled by rich white landowners. And that's not a racist thing in, in me saying that. That's just simply what it was. And as a poor white non-landowner, that's not a racial issue. So it didn't get addressed as such, you know. It didn't get addressed as rich white males are taking things from us. No, it was just... Women, African Americans, slaves, uh, and and poor whites couldn't vote for the most part up till that point. Um, 
And that process was peaceful and widely supported. Rhode Island, uh, the Door Rebellion of the 1840s, uh, demanded for uh, equal suffrage. Um, it, it still, they still ended up with a property requirement for any resident born outside of the United States. So they did, weren't able to completely get rid of it even in the 1840s. The last state to abolish property qualification was North Carolina in 1856, resulting in a close approximation to universal white male suffrage. Now, we're looking at 1856. This is not the, this is not the British Empire. This is not England. This is not Spain. This is not um, any of these countries with this long, long history the United States is relatively young, and even by 1856, we're at the point that we're just now getting all white males to vote. This process was not perfect when it was enacted. From the Constitution and Bill of Rights on, we've not done everything exactly right. We've done things poorly in a lot of regards, but we've given room for growth. And up until this point, there's been a lot of support for that growth because that growth is representing free white Americans. There was still a lot of kickback. A lot of rich people wanted complete and total control, and that's how you end up with a monarchy, and that was what the forefathers feared, and that's why there was so much change and, and effort put in for change for these voting laws is because we didn't want the few rich families to run the country. You know, we didn't want a dynasty of people to run the country. Um... Some people might argue between Clintons and Bushes, and, uh, you know, we, we've had that. Even in, in our, later, our later form. In 1868, citizenship is guaranteed to all male persons or naturalized in the United States by the 14th Amendment. 1868, we passed the 14th Amendment. Um... That, that's a big thing because we see from this that there's the possibility for future growth in voting rights. In 1870, the, fifth, the, 1870, the 15th Amendment of the United States is enacted. Uh, it prevents states from denying the right to vote on grounds of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That is to say, regardless of whether you were a slave before, you have the right to vote. Regardless of whether you're an African American, you have the right to vote. Regardless, if you're white, you have the right to vote. If you're a woman, still not, um, still not getting to vote. Um, that did bring forward um, the disenfranchisement and, and Reconstruction era. Uh, many, many, many former Confederate states passed Jim Crow laws uh, and amendments to effectively disenfranchise African American and poor white voters. Um, it's important to understand. They, they didn't want poor white voters to vote either. Uh, it, 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 it was a matter of we, we need a, an upper white ruling class uh, to, to lead this country. Um, the Supreme Court pretty much upheld state efforts to discriminate against racial minorities. There's a very important part about how this country is uh, constructed, and, and when I do the Electoral College podcast, you know, I know some of you are tired of the the, the political stuff, but th th this is a, a moment in time that I think it's important to do that. 
But it's very, very important that we have uh, state rights and the state has a say in how we do things. It's almost inherent. It, it, it's, it's actually completely and totally the reason uh, for the Electoral College. It's, it's also how the, the country's constructed. That's the basis for the Senate and for the Congress. It's equal representation from the states, not based on the size of the state, based on the population of the state, but allowing the population of that state to come together uh, once it's made a choice on a popular vote and be able to have an impact by giving its electoral votes to a, one party. Um, in 1887, citizenship is granted to Native Americans. Think about that. That makes those males technically eligible to vote, but it's 1887. 1887 before the people you stole the property for from have the ability to vote along with the people who stole the property from them. And you're at a point where you're still stealing property from these people, so it's not removed by hundreds of years. Um... 1913, direct election of senators established by the 17th Amendment to the United States Constitution gave voters rather than state legislator the right to elect senators. This takes the power of electing representation away from the states and gives it to the members of the state. But it's still a state process and it protects the investment and the ability of the states, each individual state, to act nationally, and that's that's very important. Finally, by 1920, women are granted the right to vote by the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Um, but, for the most part, the same restrictions that hindered the ability of non-white men to vote now also applied to non-white women, so, you know, um, it's 1920... You have women's suffrage. You have the right for the women to vote. But what they're not saying, especially in the Jim Crow South, this is just the right for white women to vote. And we're looking at this by 1920. Uh, we've seen citizenship for Native Americans, which gives them, ideally gives them the right to vote, but doesn't physically give them the right to vote. Uh, we have women's vote and the 15th Amendment. So African Americans, women, white women, and uh, Native Americans ideally have the ability to vote. But in practice, especially in the South, that's really not the case yet. In 1924, all Native Americans were granted citizenship and the right to vote through the Indian Citizenship Act regardless of tribal affiliation. Um, that gives us about two-thirds of Native Americans who were already citizens. Um, some Western states continued to bar Native Americans from voting until 1948. Uh, some people would say in some areas that lasted much longer than that. We had a Supreme Court justice, I believe, who was a part of that issue in Arizona. Um, in 1961... Residents of Washington, D.C. are granted the right to vote in U.S. presidential elections by the 23rd Amendment to the United States of America. 
1964, a huge turning point. Um, the Supreme Court under uh, Chief Justice Warren made a series of landmark decisions which helped establish the nationwide one-man, one-vote electoral system in the United States. Um, that's different from the Electoral College. That's not the 51%. That, that, that's a different deal. In March of 62, uh, Warren ruled in Baker v. Carr that restricting uh, qualifies, redistricting qualifies as a judiciable question, thus enabling federal courts to hear redistricting cases. Um, this is still an issue today, and we're getting ready to see a redistricting in a lot of places. Um, it, now with computers, the, the, the computation is takes seconds and it's easy to understand and with a census in hand and a look at voting uh, practices, a Republican in power or a Democrat in power uh, can, can take the initiative to redistrict some areas and, and you can effectively silence the African American vote, the Republican vote, the Democrat vote, um, uh, the the uh, Latino vote, the Cuban vote, just on how you redistrict things. Make them drive a little bit further to a polling place. Uh, separate them from larger segments of uh, uh, their own population to where their vote doesn't have as much power. And, and that's 62 for the, the progress we made um, we, we still were kind of dealing with that. In February of 64, the Warren Court ruled in Westbury versus Sanders that districts in the United States House of Representatives must be approximately equal in population. Now, that's not a game changer in ending voter manipulation and suppression because you can still keep a large population, but adjust the contents of that population for a desired outcome. It determines who you get into uh, mayor's offices, who you get into local areas, but also on a statewide area, it allows you to cut polling places. And if you can cut polling places, a lot of times you can, you, you can weed out voters who don't have the ability to make it to the polls. In June of 64, the Warren Court ruled in Reynolds versus Sims that each chamber of a bicameral uh, state legislator must have electoral districts roughly equal in population. We get the same thing here from state legislation that we get from um, uh, representatives uh, in, in, in the past act. In 64, Poll tax payment prohibited from being used as a condition for voting in federal elections by the 24th Amendment. Now this one, this one sets up some, some big change and, and hurts a lot of Jim Crow states who fought this and, and who, who really disregarded a lot of federal mandates. But the ideal of voting is for everyone to have equal representation. And three things that have they've used to kind of prohibit that and, and stop that and three things that in my opinion are very big indicators of voter suppression which in my opinion is voter fraud is poll taxes which eliminates the right for poor people to vote the people who need the representation most the people who are most 
underrepresented. So poll taxes are a huge hindrance to that, far and away. There used to be a literacy test for voting. Just because you can't read and write does not mean you don't have the right to um, be part of the process of choosing your leadership. Uh, especially in modern times, that's just a, a sign that the school systems, uh, your parents, someone has failed you, but it's not a failing on your own part. Um, and in in individual state laws in the South have always been a, a big hindrance. And, and as you can tell, Warren was in the process of eliminating a lot of those. Uh, and a lot of that under Johnson. Johnson, for his shortcomings in other areas and his war profiteering, did a lot uh, because gentlemen like Martin Luther King Jr. made it possible for him to do a lot in regards to addressing these by making this nationally known and, and giving it a face. Um, in 65, the protection of voter registration and voting for racial minorities, later applied to language minorities, is established by the Voting Acts Right of 1965. Uh, this had also been applied to correcting discriminatory election systems and uh, districting. In my personal opinion, if you look at the, the climate and atmosphere of that time and you look at what's going on, this is 100% an attack on Jim Crow laws to me. Uh, 66, tax payment and wealth requirements for voting in state elections are prohibited by the Supreme Court, Harper versus Virginia Board of Education. Again, Poor people deserve an equal equal representation to the rich, and that is the foundation of what the country uh, um, needs to be. It's not a foundation of what the country was founded on. That's simply not true because we didn't start out with that, and and it's it's evident that it's not going to to be the case even today. There's still ways that poor voters are restricted even though it's not on paper. It's not a legal uh, restriction. It, it's ways in which knowingly elections are run. Uh, 71 adults aged 18 through 21 are guaranteed the right to vote by the 26th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Um, this was enacted due to the Vietnam War protests. They, for the most part, felt underrepresented and that's your demographic of who's going to war. That's your demographic of who's getting drafted, who's volunteering, and, and they have very little representation. And they fought strongly uh, during the Vietnam War, and, and, and you end up with something like that. You end up with politicians because of efforts from protesters having to make changes. Because protesting is a God-given right in the United States of America. Riding is not, but protesting is. Um, 1972 requirement that a person reside in a jurisdiction for an extended period is prohibited by the, the Supreme Court and Dunn versus uh, Bloomstein. Um, that one is one of those that can be used as voter suppression and as voter manipulation. So it, it's something that it didn't give us a clear understanding of where to go with that ruling and so Subsequently, we had voter suppression come from that and voter fraud come from that. 
and 73 Washington, D.C. local elections, such as mayor and councilman, restored after a 100-year gap in Georgetown and a 190-year gap in the wider city, ending Congress's policy of local election disenfranchisement started in 1801 in the former portion of Maryland. Uh, you can do a little further research on that on something called the D.C. Home Rule. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1986, United States military and uniformed service merchant marine and other citizens overseas living on bases in the United States abroad or aboard ship are granted the right to vote by the Uniformed Overseas Citizen Absentee Voting Act. A large portion of our military was not allowed to vote for many years and not even necessarily restricted from voting, but not given the ability, the opportunity, and the access to vote. The people fighting and dying for your country did not have the ability to be represented in the elections during wartime or service. 96 to 2008, 28 U.S. states changed their laws on felon voting rights, mostly to restore rights or to simplify the process of restoration. Florida. <laughs> Florida, look, you got a felony if it was a regardless nonviolent drug whatever we were taking away people's constitutional rights even though we were saying here they've done their time they've paid their price they are reestablished into society understandably not all felons should be able to vote and you know i've said that and people have said to me well then who gets to be the hand of God that makes that decision? We have the separation of church and state. The hand of God does not make that decision in the United States of America. The United States government does, and it is a representative of its people. That's not, any of these things are not processes or problems that we do not have the ability to rectify and rectify fairly. <clears throat> we just have to make sure that we defend our own personal right to representation. But even just as importantly and equally as valuable, we must defend the right and ability for people we disagree with to be heard, seen, and represented. That's a huge part of our country. 2006, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was ex extended for the fourth time by President George W. Bush, being the second extension of 25 years. I can't explain to you why we don't go ahead and just incorporate this for a lifelong extension. You know, I think what a lot of people don't understand uh, about the Voting Rights Act is that it's not a permanent part of our framework as, as a, a, a country. It's something that subsequent presidents have to renew. Um, you know, a 25-year extension on this act instead of uh, making it a permanent part of, of, of our system. But it is what it is. Um, 2008, state laws on felony disenfranchisement have since continued to shift, both curtailing and restoring voter rights, sometimes over short periods of time within the same U.S. state. Again, by 2008, Florida, I believe, still had issues with this. I believe they finally got those uh, under control. Uh, 2013, Supreme Court ruled in the 5-4 Shelby County versus Holder decision that um, 
section of the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional. Stated that if states or local governments want to change their voting laws, they must appeal to the Attorney General. Now, I'm big on state rights. But the issue here is saying that an individual state who already has existing laws should have to make an appeal before changing these laws. The, the only other option to me is to make that a popular vote uh, issue in that state. That is to say, if the state can vote on a popular, w with, uh, you know, an overwhelming majority, because anything done in a state is done with majority and not done in the manner that the electoral college is done. So, um, you know, I, I, I could understand that. Um, but that's kind of how we got to here. That's how we got to this point. That's a lot of time and a lot of struggle and a lot of fight. And the thing is, everyone's still not equally represented. It's just the facts of the matter. And that allows for two things. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address these two things in a way that people will understand because, unfortunately, the way people seem to understand things is when you put them into a party affiliation. The Republican Party in modern times is known much more for voter suppression, keeping votes of that are harmful to them out of the voting system. And that stops everyone from being equally represented. The Democrat Party in modern times is known much more for stealing votes and having inaccurate votes, which makes it impossible for everyone to be represented. So it's not an either-or. It's a both situation. And I would assure you that if someone took the time to sit down and look at districting and precincts and, and counted votes and all this in the 2020 election, you would find that there is voter fraud. There are legal votes obtained by the Democrats. There are dead people voting, people voting twice, people voting, votes being stolen. There are also massive voter suppression from the right. It's become the calling card, respectfully, of each party. Everyone wants to be represented. And in order to do that, you have to fight both issues. It's just how it works. It's not overly complicated. Uh, it's, it's not this amazing, amazingly complex issue. It's right in front of us. But if we're continually mad at each other for who won and how the other voted, then we can't work together as a unit on the things that collectively affect all of us. Now, is there bad elections in the history of the United States of America? That's a ridiculous statement. Um, of course there are. And, and if we got into this at the state, city, and, you know, the gubernatorial, the mayors, the representatives, the school board, if we got into this, this would be a thousand episode podcast that, that would be hours and hours and hours on end. So, you know, um, looking at something like I've spoke about in the past, uh, Harry Truman's uh, VP nod. That was clearly stolen. Um, you know, at the beginning of that convention, Wallace had more than half the votes necessary to secure his nomination. Um, only 2% of those polled at that point or surveyed back then uh, wanted Truman. 
it was backdoor deals and things of that nature that that got us to that point. And I've talked about that in the past, and that's not voter fraud. That's a sign. That's that's just an example of how the system could not work. Um, I've spoke about Kennedy and his win in Illinois and Joe Kennedy's promise to the mob. A lot of that's conjecture, a lot of that's opinion, a lot of that is fact. Uh, it's not something you can point to and, and look at and give a definitive. Uh, it, you know, but there's been a lot of contested and a lot of questionable uh, elections uh, throughout the United States of America. Thomas Jefferson versus John Adams. Um, the Democrat-Republicans um, who ran Jefferson and Burr uh, on, on their ballot for the Democrat-Republicans uh, against uh, John Adams. You know, uh, before the 12th Amendment, electors cast two votes for their party uh, without specifying one as being for the president and the other for the vice president. So... Um, because of that, Jefferson and Burr received exactly the same number of electoral votes, and the election was a tie. Uh, with no majority majority within the Electoral College, the decision was deferred to the House of Representatives, uh, then controlled by the Federalist Party. Although Jefferson was clearly the Democratic-Republicans candidate, and that, I said that party correctly, the Democratic-Republicans candidate for president, the Federalist Party considered Burr to be less of an evil, one of my favorite statements in politics. Um, they tried to rally support for Burr in place of Jefferson. Burr also refused to endorse Jefferson. Um, these two parties were sharing a presidency. Uh, th this election prompted the passing of the 12th Amendment, which introduced double balloting. The Electoral College now casts two separate votes, one for president and one for vice president. I still would like to see that separated where you got a Republican president, Democrat vice president, uh, Democrat president, Republican vice president. Uh, in, in 1824, John Quincy Adams versus Andrew Jackson. Um, this is the f was the first election in which the winner of the popular vote did not become the president. Um, actually, there was four candidates that received electoral votes in that, and, and it's a good example of why the electoral college is important. Um, uh, it, it would drastically change the face of America, but we're, we're not going to talk about that. 36, 1836, you had Martin Van Buren versus Richard Johnson. Um, the Democrat-Republicans presidential candidate Martin Van Buren won both the popular vote and the electoral vote uh, in that one. Um, the, the Whigs were involved in this, and... and um, Without 23 needed votes, Johnson did not receive a majority vote with the Electoral College. The decision was deferred at this point to the Senate, where Johnson was finally elected by a majority of votes in the Senate, not elected by the people. Um, 1872, Grant versus Greeley. Um, with no president to guide them, Greeley's electoral split 84 votes among four minor candidates, not two. And this is for the actual presidential election. Again, another great point in, 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 in why the electoral college is important. Um, 
granted, I already won an absolute majority of the electoral votes, so the result of the election was not affected. However, history was slightly skewed because Grant is credited with defeating Greeley 286 to zero. Um, but that's not the case. And at that time, this election was considered to be great fraud. Um, I'm giving you the names of these elections and the dates. You can go back and look at them. Um, 1876, Samuel Tilden versus Rutherford B. Hayes. One of the most controversial presidential elections was between uh, Tidden and Hayes. Tidden, a Democrat, won the popular vote by nearly 250,000 votes, over 3%. On the night of the election, both candidates, as well as most of the national media, assumed Tilden was the winner. However, some Republicans were not willing to give up so easily. The candidates' electoral votes were close, and the Republicans con contested 20 of them, including four from Florida, eight from Louisiana. Think about that. Louisiana worth more electoral votes than Florida. Seven from South Carolina and one from Oregon. Of those 20 electoral votes, Tiden only needed one to win the election. Hayes needed all 20. Without any president for the many contested electoral votes, both parties agreed to set up a 15-person commission to study the contested votes and to impartially decide whom each vote would go to. Uh, the commission was made up of five senators, five members of Congress, and five Supreme Court justices. It was originally set up to include seven Democrats, seven Republicans, and one independent who was expected to be unbiased and nonpartisan. At this time, the Republicans controlled the Senate and the Democrats controlled the House. Both parties agreed that the findings of the commission would be upheld unless overruled by the House and the Senate. When the independent who was supposed to serve on the commission was elected as a senator, he resigned his position on the commission and was replaced by a Republican. The commission now had eight Republicans and seven Democrats. Over a series of discussions, the commission voted along party lines and awarded all 20 votes to Rutherford, Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican candidate. Each vote was 8-7 with the Republican majority controlling decision. Uh, the Democrats ended up threatening to filibuster this. Um, you can go to Harper's Weekly, and they've got a complete analysis and timeline of this 1876 um, election. I got some information from them on this. Um, that election was determined by the Congress and the House. It, it was determined by parties, not determined by people. You know, that that's important to look at where we are today. You know, we want to make sure that if there's something wrong with the election we're currently involved in, that it ends up being determined legally and not just by a partisan vote in the House or in the Senate. Uh, 1888, Benjamin Harris versus Grover Cleveland. Um, this was another time when the popular vote did not become president. Uh, there was a lot of questions in this um, on the effectiveness of the Electoral College. Uh, if if you if you look at this again, to me, it's a pretty strong indication of 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 the importance of the electoral college. Uh, I think everyone remembers the hanging chads in two thousand Gore versus Bush. Um, Florida become a huge focal point uh, of that, and Florida was officially won by five hundred thirty seven votes after a process of recounting the votes uh, and a Supreme Court ruling. Um, a lot of voters complained about confusing ballots and things of that nature, um, saying they voted uh, for Pat, Pat Buchanan instead of voting for Gore. Um, 
and that's highly possible. Uh, obviously, 2016, Clinton versus Trump. Um, you've got another na a popular vote loser uh, winning. Um, w with this, it, it's accusations in, in 2016 of, of voter fraud. The election was particularly close in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Sound familiar? Uh, Trump won all those states with less than 50% of the votes cast and with a smaller margin than the number of votes cast for third-party candidates Gary Johnson uh, and, and Jill Stein. Uh, Stein actually called for a recount in all three states. Uh, she was running on the Green Party. Um, Wisconsin's the only state that actually done a full recount with no significant change. Uh, one began in Michigan, was halted by the courts, and the recount in Pennsylvania never began as the Stein campaign was unable to produce the required $1 million bond. Uh, it's not the, the responsibility of, of the candidate to, to pay for the, the recount, in my opinion. But, you know, the, the real question in that was, in a lot of people's eyes, who legally voted and, and, you know, was there manipulation of the system, whether it be by Russia, whether it be by the Democrats. So we, we kind of got to look into voter fraud and, and voter bias and uh, voter suppression. I want to talk about a gubernatorial race um, in Georgia, Stacey Abrams versus Kemp. Um, this is an example of both voter fraud and voter suppression. Over one million voters were purged in one day, the largest in U.S. history. That means if these people hadn't found a reason to vote in the last six years and they wanted to go out that day and vote without being contacted, without any prior notice whatsoever, they had been purged from the voting list and were told when they got there that they could not vote. Now, a lot of people would say that's voter suppression. I would agree with that completely. A lot of people did not get to vote in that race, and it was extremely, extremely close, and a lot of questionable calls were made at the end of that race, and Kemp won uh, the governorship. Now, you have to understand in what time Kemp was running for governor, he was already an official in the government electorate. I believe he was Attorney General of uh, Georgia. I'd have to go back and look, but his office was very deeply involved with voter registration, zoning, uh, all of these different things. He, he had complete and total control over the voting process while running for governor. Now, two interesting things happened here. One, Abrams denied any voter fraud and Kemp denied any voter suppression. Well, the one million voters purged in one day, the largest in U.S. history, is proof of voter suppression. It was an ideal, an epiphany that came to Kemp, and it's something that they'd done just prior to his election. And it was so many people, they couldn't reach out to all of them. Uh, he'd been highly, highly involved with redistricting and things of that nature. It is 100% purely clear he was involved with voter suppression. However, Abrams denied adamantly any voter fraud, whether it be for her 
or for Kemp. Well, when Abrams went to vote with CNN cameras in tow, she was informed she couldn't vote. She had requested, requested an absentee ballot and could not vote. She'd never voted from home, did not request an absentee ballot, and because more than likely news cameras were there and she was uh, a candidate for the governor of Georgia, they were able to fix it. Now, in the same right, Kemp goes to vote, cameras in hand, and his voting machine messes up, kicks out his card and infuses his vote, and he's forced to vote again. To me, proof that in this particular case, both things very much happened. Um, when we were looking at voting laws, I believe it was 1796 Melungeons were allowed to vote, and, and that's something I left out, and something to look into that's that's very a very interesting story, the story of the Melungeon people of the United States of America. Um, uh, something really worth worth looking at. I know, this has been a long one, and probably been a boring one and there's a lot of things put in here um from time magazine to the new york post and the new york times to uh, uh harper weekly uh to any government website you can imagine there was a lot of hours of research and i'm gonna give those as much credit as i can uh i just don't i didn't write everything down i did but i don't have it with me um I didn't research this for the idea of doing a podcast, so I didn't exactly compile it in a way that I would do a podcast. Uh, so going back over some of the information was a little frantic and things of that nature, but I've done it for my own personal well-being, for my own personal um, uh, information and and to, to, to better my knowledge, which in my opinion betters me as a person. Um, you know, I've done music podcasts, funny podcasts, mailbag podcasts. They won't all be this way. Um, it's just not the way that I do it, but it's important to speak to what you have passion about, and it's important to 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 do the things that you find importance in. Um, they may not always be the most fun, maybe not even the most entertaining, but but there's a value there and an importance there, and and uh, it, it's something that uh, that needs needs addressed. And to me, the value of the vote and uh, that right is of a magnitude that nothing else even comes close to. I don't think it's a perfect system at all. I think the, the parties are flawed. The system is flawed. Representation is not fair and equal. But that doesn't mean it can't be at some point. The way you do that is you educate yourself, you be involved, and you be unbiased to the best of your ability and understand everyone just wants to be represented. You know, not all white males vote Republican. It's clearly not the case. But we accept that to some degree as, as belief and we let it help divide us. Not all African Americans voted Biden. That is apparent uh, to a large degree. But we let that be a dividing thing. I don't look at it in those regards. I looked at it as 
one group of Americans tried to vote in a way that they felt best represented and defended their rights. And another group voted for the same reasons in the opposite direction. Some of those Americans voted for a third or fourth option for the same reason. They just want to be heard. It's easy to say that this group of individuals should not feel that they are not heard. It's easy to say that this group of individuals, it should be apparent to them that they're represented. But if you're not part of that group of individuals, you don't know. I don't know that all African Americans feel represented. Actually, from this election, I would have to say that I feel that none of them do because they went for both parties. And I don't believe that poor white miners from Eastern Kentucky or poor... That's the thing about Eastern Kentucky. It, to me, it's hard to split into that demographic. I don't believe poor out-of-work miners from Eastern Kentucky, regardless of color, feel represented. And even if these people make a choice to vote for someone that's clearly not going to represent them because you can see something they don't see or something they, they're not willing to see or, or something that it hurts them to see does not mean that their right and, and desire to be represented is any different than yours. I guarantee you there was voter fraud in this election. There's been voter fraud in every election ever. Now, was it enough to, do, to determine the outcome? I don't know. In today's time, that's a little harder. Was there voter suppression? Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Was it enough to prohibit the outcome on a national level? That's kind of hard to do. Uh, not as easy as it used to be. But it is done, and it can happen. It does happen. Did society, did social media, did the news impact this election? Most definitely. People read and believe and follow some of the most ignorant things I've ever seen or heard in my life. But at the end of the day, a large group of people, one of the largest I've seen, was able to exercise their right to make a decision. A decision on who would represent them going forward. If a court system is not able to prove that it was stolen, then respect those people's rights that voted. And go into this as optimistically as you can. And if it's determined that it was cheated, then respect those people's rights who voted and go into this with the most optimistic outlook that you can. And if you're on the right and you're telling me, hey, things are, things are, are over if the left wins because it'll never be the same and we're going to lose this, this, and this, then I ask you, with the exception of the fluff peace policies that were put out by the media, explain to me the difference from George Sr., from Reagan, from Clinton, from Bush, from Obama. Intelligently explain the difference in war, poverty, and putting people in cages, especially in those last two between Obama and Trump. 
And if you're on the left and you tell me this is going to be so different and it's end of the world like it was last time and things are going to explain to me the difference. Just like I asked the first group. Not what they say. Not what the media covers. What they actually do. Show me the difference. Show me the difference in the rich not getting richer anymore. Show me the, richer, the difference in pharmaceutical companies not having complete and total control anymore. Show me the difference in who Cheney was friends with then and who Cheney's friends with now. You're all getting played. The importance is you're still making an effort to impact the game. Continue to do that. Do it with pride. Do it with respect. And do it with passion. But on the same hand, give that same respect and honor and admiration to those who are playing the same game, who are trying to make the same difference. They're just doing it from a different perspective and from a different party than yourself. The right to vote is a right for freedom of expression and the want and desire for change and the pursuit of equal representation. But it is not the right to be mean, petty, or to try to silence voices that you don't like. Don't suck, don't die, and don't be mean. And the next one will be different, I promise you. We'll, we'll cut the politics.